Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Last time in our first study of James, we cracked open this letter and made it through verse 8 of chapter 1. We pick up where we left off. We start again with verse 9. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Some of you may remember the true account from history of the evacuation of the city of Pompeii, which was destroyed in 79 AD by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. When archaeologists went to work on digging up the remains of this city, they found a body which was embalmed by the ashes of the volcano. The body was that of a woman. Her feet were turned toward the city gate, but her face was turned back towards something that was just beyond her outstretched hands. In her last moment of life, while she was fleeing the destruction of the volcano and while she was trying to run to safety, she reached back for something that was important to her. As archaeologists kept digging, they found exactly what it was that she had been reaching for in her moment of death. Her fingers, frozen in time, were reaching back for a bag of pearls. I would suggest to you that about the only difference between this woman and a lot of people alive today is that her death was instant. If we are to be brutally honest with ourselves, the days before us are numbered for every single one of us. And far too many believers in Christ will be caught facing their own death while reaching back for the pearls of their life. James has some mighty tough words in this short epistle about the dangers of the wealth of this world. Wisdom teaches us to heed the warnings that you cannot fill the emptiness of your life with the things that fade away. Only Christ can satisfy the longing of your soul. Take a look at how we start out with verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. 
Remember the foundation that we laid down in our last study. James was written to believers 15 times in this epistle. James uses the phrase, my brethren. And James was writing to help the early Christians know how to respond to the trials of life. James was going back to the theme of verses 2, 3, and 4. Remember what he told the Christians, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience. I think that James is hitting at one of those areas where believers in Christ are often tested. And really at the heart of what James was teaching, his concern was not so much whether you are rich or poor. His concern was how the believers in Christ were responding to the circumstances that they were in. In other words, James understood that within the body of Christ, some are going to have more than enough money to live on, while yet others will live day to day in poverty. But in all things, whether you are rich or poor, James was worried about the attitude of the heart for the redeemed child of God. How you look at money, it speaks a lot about your faith. First, in verse 9, we have the lowly brother. And James includes some amazing words of instruction that the lowly brother should glory in his exaltation. James used some strong wording. It means to take pride in something that you have a right to be proud of. James is saying, if you're poor, don't be down about it. Don't walk around with the woe is me type attitude. Look to the day when you will be exalted. If you are poor, if you are in the lower class, it affects the way that people treat you. James understood this. James understood the emotions that you can go through when people look down on you. And when you don't have enough to get by, it can be discouraging. Stop and think of the words of James. He didn't have a pity party for the poor, and he certainly did not tell them to run around chasing money as the answer to their problems. He tells them to look to the riches that we have in Christ. That's beautiful. Look to the riches we have in Christ. James wanted the poor to understand that being poor, it wasn't the end of the road because being poor encouraged humility and it brought about faith and dependence upon God. Remember the word of God teaches us that Christ, he did not come for the mighty of this world. Christ came to save the poor, the downcast, those humble enough to know their need of a savior. What did Paul tell the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. James is calling the poor within the church of Christ to glory in the position they have been exalted to as a child of God. You may be poor. You may be looked down upon by the men and women of this world. You may even be considered a nobody. But in the eyes of God, you are one of his precious children who have been bought by the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a redeemed follower of Christ, James is telling us, don't let the circumstances of life define you. Let your position in Christ define who you are. Let the word of God teach you of the glorious future awaiting you for all of eternity. 
with the Lord. Make your life centered on living for Christ, not centered on living for this fallen world, because we have something far better than what this world can offer. We have a living Savior waiting for us. And I think this is part of the reason that taking part of the local assembly of believers is so important. Because we all need to remember that we belong to the family of God. We belong to Christ. So instead of being bitter, instead of being discouraged about being poor or the circumstances of this life, remember the hope we have. Remember the glorified bodies awaiting us. Remember the King of kings and Lord of lords who is waiting to share his kingdom with us. The riches we have in Christ, they far outweigh the poverty we may go through while living in this world. Now take verses 10 and 11 together. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Just as the poor man should take glory in his future in Christ, the rich man should glory in his humiliation. Now, you may notice that in verse 10, James did not repeat the word brother. This has led many to believe that the rich man of verse 10 that James had in mind was not a believer in Christ. But I don't think the text supports this idea. I don't think the wording in the sentence supports the idea that the rich person here is not a believer in Christ. Verses 9 and 10 are really one sentence. And the noun for both the rich and the lowly man is the brother. Even the word for glory goes with both the rich man and the poor man. This sentence is really the use of parallel thought. All that James was doing was contrasting the different struggles that the rich and the poor Christians have in this life. The poor brother in Christ has his battles, but so does the rich man in Christ. Remember what Christ himself taught about the rich man in Matthew 19. Matthew recorded that Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And remember the answer that Jesus gave. Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Certainly, God can redeem the heart of a rich man. Certainly, God can transform the rich man into a new creation in Christ. But the rich man, he still has his battles. Listen to the words of Proverbs 18.11. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. Listen to that again. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem esteem. Or what about the parable of the rich man in Luke 12? Jot down Luke 12 and listen to the parable of Christ. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will 
pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And pay attention to this next part. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, building up wealth in this world often leads to pride. It leads to arrogance. And the rich man, more often than not, ends up trusting in his wealth instead of the Lord. James knew the danger that wealth can bring, and he was sounding off an alarm to warn those in Christ of the danger. The word for rich, it literally means one who does not need to work for a living. This brother or sister in Christ is told to glory in his humiliation. Powerful applications for the church of Christ. Think of what this is saying. The world would tell this man to glory in his wealth, glory in what he has made of himself in this world. But James is teaching us just as the poor man in Christ should glory in his identity and future in Christ, the rich man in Christ should also be thinking of himself as a child of God. Just as the poor brother in Christ should not focus on his poverty, in the same manner the rich brother should not focus on his own wealth, because in Christ, the two men, they're equal. James is calling the rich man to an understanding that at the cross, he stands on level ground with the poor brother in Christ. One is not better than the other. Some churches elevate rich men to leadership just because of their wealth. One is not better than the other. Both have been given new life in Christ. Both are told to glory in Christ. And the reason James gives us in the second half of verse 10 is because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. It is far too easy for the rich man to get puffed up with pride, to forget the brevity of life. And when it comes to the eternal, his wealth means absolutely nothing. It does nothing to secure his future. Here is the word picture James is giving us. In Judea, the flowers in the fields bloom in great numbers each spring because of the spring rains. They're beautiful, but their lifespan is short. And when the dry summer season hits, they quickly fade away. And all throughout the scripture, we see these flowers as a symbol for the speed at which life passes by. Take another look at verse 11 at how James illustrates this point. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. The grass withers. The flower falls. The beautiful appearance perishes. The rich man will fade away. The sun rising with a burning heat is a reference to the hot sun coming upon the land of Judea, scorching the grass and the flowers. It is about noontime when the heat of the sun begins to scorch the land in Judea. Just a little bit of heat destroys the beauty of the flowers. And the application from James is that the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. 
Notice the end of the verse, fade away in his pursuits. James is telling us that the rich man will fade away even while he's busy chasing the things of this world. Just like the woman reaching back for the bag of pearls, he will be so busy chasing worldly things that he will not even recognize that his time is up. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Verse 12 in James. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is still on this subject from verse 2 on dealing with the trials of life. And at the same time, James is opening the door to expand his teaching on the temptations that we face. Follow me with the wording of the text. That the word for trials back in verse 2, the word for temptation in verse 12, and the word for temptation that James uses in verses 13 and 14, the words are all closely related. And the meaning is either temptation or trials, depending on the context of the verse. Back in verse 2, the correct meaning was trials. Starting in verse 13, the correct meaning is temptations. Here in verse 12, the context of the verse supports the idea that this should still be trials. In fact, the word used here in verse 12 is the same word for trials used back in verse 2. Trials of life are to be endured not temptations. Temptations are to be resisted. James was wrapping up his teaching on the trials of life. And what James has in mind at this point is exactly what we looked at before back in verses two and three. Letting the trials, the testing of your faith, produce patience. And allowing this patience produce growth in your walk in Christ. To endure the trials of life here in verse 12 is the same as what James described before, embracing the trials of life as an opportunity to depend more upon God. Think again of what James teaches us about the man or woman in Christ enduring such trials. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now this phrase has been approved It was used of the testing of coins and metals. And the idea given in this verse is that the trials of life may seem like something that we could live without, but God uses them as a part of his greater plan. Listen, the idea of this text is not that the testing, the trials of life and how we handle them is proof or evidence of whether or not we truly belong to God. James is telling us, suppose that a Christian, any Christian, rich or poor, has the right attitude towards their trials. They welcome their struggles as an opportunity to grow in their faith. James is testifying such a believer can look forward to the crown of life. The expression for when he has been approved is referring back to the growth that God is looking for in your life that he wrote about in verses three and four. 
The testing of your faith produces patience. It produces maturity in Christ. This is what God desires. This is what he is looking for. We read Romans 5 last week where Paul said, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. If you have faced your trials, your tough times in life, the way that God wants you to, you're truly blessed, and you will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We already have received eternal life. We have already escaped eternal death, eternal condemnation. So this crown of life has to be something more. Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life is a gift. This crown is something more than the gift of eternal life. At the judgment seat of Christ, believers who have endured trials in life and have responded the way that God intends us to respond will receive the crown of life. This is a promise from God to all who love the Lord Jesus Christ. The only other place in Scripture that we have mention of this crown of life is found in Revelation 2.10, written well after the book of James. Listen to what it teaches us, speaking about those in the church of Smyrna. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Notice the focus on suffering, and listen to this next part. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is clearly the reward for those who are found faithful, but it cannot be something that is received in this life. Because Revelation 2.10 teaches that if believers were faithful unto death, they would receive the crown of life. And notice James records this is a promise from the Lord to those who love him. Love for God should be the outcome of our faith. But if you endure the trials, if you let the trials bring you closer to God, if you face the tough times and let them bring you closer to God, you are demonstrating that you love the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this will be your reward at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 13 opens up another powerful section of teaching. Take a look with me. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Remember what we said before. At this point, James isn't referring to trials anymore because James is now referring to the temptations we face. This is the inner temptation to sin. James understood that some people, when going through the tough times, when going through trials, they tend to blame God because in the trials there is a temptation to sin recognize this, understand this, that when you go through a difficult time, Satan wants you to sin, and God wants you to continue to walk by faith. Think of Job in the Old Testament. Job went through a lot of trials, but Satan wanted Job to curse God, and that is the lesson here. When we have troubles, there comes a temptation to do or to say the wrong thing. Perhaps 
even the temptation to curse God or blame God for our problems. And verse 13 is about setting the record straight. James tells us no one, not one single person, no matter what they're going through, should make the claim that they are being tempted by God. There's a little bit of a hint in the wording used that this might have been going on, that some of the early Christians might have been, in fact, blaming God and proclaiming that God was the one tempting them. James was making it known that they should quit making such accusations against God. The implication given in this verse is that this person is on the verge of giving in to their temptation, and their excuse that they were using is that God was the one tempting them. This shouldn't shock us all that much. This is the path of the sin nature, to blame someone else for your sin. We all know what Adam said way back in the Garden of Eden. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Not only did Adam blame Eve, but Adam was really blaming God. You gave me this woman, God, and if you wouldn't have done that, I would not have fallen into sin. Foolishness, isn't it? Now, you may not hear someone today be so blunt as to just say, God is tempting me. But really, isn't this the same when we say things like, God made me this way? God is the one who caused me to be born into a broken family or a poor family. More and more, we hear people claim that the devil is the one who made them sin. But all of these are just attempts by men to escape the responsibility for their actions. God does at times test his people. God does allow trials into our lives, which are meant to cause us to grow in our faith. But that is very, very different from saying that God tests men with the wicked intent of leading them into sin. James explains it to us. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. The claim that God was tempting these believers cannot be true because of the very character of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God. It means that it is impossible to tempt him to sin. Now, Satan can try. But sin has no appeal to God. Sin, by its very nature, is revolting to God, and therefore God would never tempt anyone to sin. The character of God precludes this. The holiness of God makes it impossible for God to be tempted and for God to tempt his people. God would not provoke his people to sin. And even when we are tempted to sin, we are reminded of the words of 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Jot them down. Memorize them. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Temptation is sin. It comes from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But even when we are tempted to sin, our loving Father will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. James focuses in on the temptation that comes from within a man when we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Verse 15 will make it clear in a minute that it is not sin to be tempted, but it becomes sin when we act on our temptations. 
The fact that James started out verse 14 by testifying, but each one is tempted. Every single one of us, no exceptions. You will be tempted to sin all throughout your life. But where does the blame really belong? Not on God. The heart of the problem is our own wicked desires. Listen to the words of Christ in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Sin comes from within. This is so fundamental to our understanding of living the Christian faith. Sin comes from within. We are drawn away and enticed by the temptation to sin. We are our own cause of temptation, not something outside of us. Satan is involved in the temptations of this world, that is for sure. But we need to understand, based on this passage, that the power of temptation never comes from Satan. It comes from our own human desires. In other words, if it were not for the desires of the flesh, if it were not for our own wicked desires, Satan would not be able to tempt us. He could try, but it wouldn't be attractive to us. The battle isn't even so much with Satan as it is with our flesh, our sin nature, with our wicked desires of the flesh. The idea of enticing in this verse, it literally means to catch a fish with bait. The picture given is that of a big juicy worm dangling down in front of a fish. The craving, it prompts us to bite, but instead we are deceived by the bait and caught up in sin. Instead of enjoying the pleasure that we thought we would, we end up being caught on the hook of sin. It's almost a perfect picture of what we are talking about with temptation and sin. Fishing is a simple concept. Fish go for the bait. But are we any better when we go for the trap of allowing ourselves to follow the bait into sin? It is only after we are reeled in do we often realize the tragic consequences of falling for the temptation to sin. Now, verse 15 records, Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. There is a progression in these verses which prove that temptation to sin cannot come from God. Notice the wording here follows the pattern of childbirth desire, conception, and birth. The cravings of the flesh demand action. Either you reject them or you choose in your heart to act on them. When you choose to act on those cravings, sin is the result. It's that simple. As we said before, temptation in itself is not sin. It should be a warning to us that danger is the only thing that will follow if we continue down this path. But there is a moment in time when we accept that we're going to give in to the flesh. This is the point when our desire has conceived. It has taken root in our heart of hearts. When we encourage the desires we have, when we take action, our desires give birth to sin. But notice the amazing words about sin from James. When it is full grown, it brings forth death. Sin can be stopped by repentance and restoring ourselves to fellowship with God. 
But if repentance does not take place, sin becomes full-grown. Full-grown sin is when it becomes the habit of a man and it brings forth death. Another word for desire is lust. And so it has been rightly said that the pattern is L-S-D, lust, sin, and then death. Now, verse 21, it gives the proof that this has to be referring to physical death. Hang tight, because we're going to pick this up in our next study. But this is something that Proverbs speaks of often. Let me just give you two verses. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs eleven nineteen: as righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Even James 5, 20, he who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save a soul from death. And we assume that the context is spiritual death, but the word of God could not be more clear in James 5, that full-grown sin leads to physical death. Even for Christians, their sin can lead to premature death, but repentance can cut the sin off before it becomes full-grown. Now, James, he ends our text with some somber words in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. The wording used by James teaches us that this was something that was already taking place. They were being deceived. They were being led astray. In effect, James was telling them, stop, just stop being deceived. It was a strong warning to the Christians that to proclaim that God tempts people is to speak falsely about who God is. As members of the family of God, they were not to allow a false understanding of God to quench their relationship with their loving Father in heaven. I often tell the story that took place some time ago of two men, both with serious problems in the same small room of a hospital. One of the men, as a part of his treatment, was allowed to sit up in bed for an hour in the afternoon in order to drain fluid in his lungs. His bed was next to the window, but the other man had to spend all of his time flat on his back Now, because of their medical problems, these two men, they were not allowed to do much. Hours would pass with just the two of them having to lay there. They would talk sometimes for hours about their wives, their children, their homes, their jobs, their time in the war, all sorts of things. And every afternoon when the man in the bed next to the window was propped up for his hour, he would pass the time by describing what he could see outside. The other man sat and listen closely, because it gave him a glimpse into the outside world. He loved to hear about the park that had a small lake with ducks and swans, kids throwing bread to the birds, kids playing with boats in the lake, young couples walking hand in hand, flowers, stretches of grass, and games of softball. Right at the back, behind the trees, was a view of the city skyline. The man on his back would listen to all of this, enjoying every minute, hearing about how a child nearly fell into the lake, how a boy was playing with his puppy. He could almost see what was happening just outside the window. Then one afternoon when the other man was describing a parade, he got to thinking, why should the man next to the window have all the joy of seeing what was going on? Why shouldn't he get a chance? At first, He felt ashamed for thinking like that. He tried to not have those thoughts. But the more he tried to not think about it, the more he did. 
He wanted to trade places. He wanted to change. He'd do anything. After a few days, he had turned bitter. He should be the one by the window. He started to let it bother him. He couldn't sleep, and his condition started to get worse. One night, as he stared at the ceiling, the other man by the window woke up coughing and choking with fluid congesting his lungs. The man by the window started groping in the dark for the button that would call the nurse for help, and the man in the next bed watched without moving. Now, he could have reached for the button to call for the nurse, but he didn't. He didn't have to do much. All he had to do was lay there and pretend that he was asleep. No one would know the difference. And so he did. He pretended to be asleep. And the coughing and the choking, it continued on and on. And then it stopped. The sound of the breathing stopped. And the man in the other bed just continued to stare at the ceiling. Not too much later, the nurses came in and found that the other man by the window had died. His body was quietly taken away. As soon as it seemed decent, the man asked if he could be moved to the bed next to the window. And so they moved him, made him quite comfortable, and left him alone to be quiet and still. Well, the minute they left, he painfully, with a lot of effort, he propped himself up on one elbow and looked out the window just to find out that it faced a brick wall. Be concerned about the things of this world that can influence us in our faith, but be even more concerned about the desires of the heart. It starts with a decision that happens in a moment. Do we cave into the temptation to sin, or do we live for the glory of God? If you give an inch of ground to the desires to live for self, the wickedness of our sin nature kicks in, leading to sin, leading to all sorts of heartache. It doesn't have to be this way. God wants to restore us as believers in Christ to a relationship with Him that is based on love, faith, joy, hope, and on walking with Him. Turn from your sins, brothers and sisters in Christ, and may it be that we take every thought captive for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we close out, I want to thank you for listening. If you want to keep current with our studies, there are a lot of ways to make sure you never miss another episode. You can subscribe by email. You can get our free app for your tablet or your phone. You can also use the Apple Podcast app or one of the Android apps and have all the episodes delivered right to your mobile device. You can find all of the links on our webpage, returntotheword.com, underneath the podcast tab. And if you're feeling social, help us out by sharing this episode on Twitter or Facebook, because by telling others, you help us to tell the world of God's amazing grace. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com.
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the 